Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Students of the Bible typically overstate the importance of Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale, assuming that he was vomited onto the dry land because of repentance. But a closer look at the text of the prayer tells a different story. Was Jonah vomited up because of a profound conversion from disobedience? Or is something else going on? The answer to this question is only apparent when we read the Bible as literature, allowing the storyline, not our assumptions about piety, to control how we hear the words of the prophet. In Jonah, it is the word of the Lord, not the prophet, that is in control. From the very beginning, with or without his prayers, Jonah's destination was never in question. Richard and I discuss Jonah chapter 2. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 216 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Piety is an interesting problem in the New Testament. Paul tackles it in his letters, and he tries to show again and again how piety, whether it's expressed as the observance of the law or the observance of festivals or acts of piety in the temple, all of the things that we do to attain ritual purity, are always called into question by the Bible. You presented a beautiful paper on Hosea last year at the OCABS Symposium, in which you showed that Hosea was not just critical of piety, but had no patience or time for piety and worship in temples. And so this is the backdrop against which you have to hear every prayer in Scripture. Because the prayer that is uttered is always on the lips of a sinner. And we know that Jonah's hypocrisy is especially pronounced. He's running away from the will of God. He's not submitting to the word which came to him. He didn't want to go take care of the weaker brother in Nineveh. And now the Lord has put him into the sea. In Hosea, there is nothing good said about rites in the temple, about sacrifice, about prayer these sorts of things. The only thing that's good is following the commandments, because in following the commandments, one is actually submitting one's will to God, because the problem with piety is it's often transactional. If I do this, God, then you'll do that. Okay, God, I need you to do that, so therefore I'll make you a deal, I'll do this, and then we'll both be happy. And one of the ideas that Hosea keeps pounding into the people's heads, and it's not exclusive to Hosea, is that God doesn't need anything from you. God doesn't need you to be nice. God doesn't need you to appreciate him. God doesn't need your glory. He doesn't need any of it. 
It's for your sake that you do these things and for your neighbor's sake. The rules about how to treat other people are the foundation of God's commandments in the Ten Commandments. The first one is about God. The rest are about how you interact with other people. The first commandment, even more importantly, is simply that there is no other God. This is the only voice you listen to. Once you get past that, then you're doing the right thing. But for some reason, that first commandment is really the struggle because we want to listen to other voices. We want to listen especially to the voice of our ego that says, I can get myself out of this jam as long as I can get a hand from God. No, God puts you in the jam, God takes you out of the jam, and God decides which way he's going to go based on himself, not on you, not on your nice words, not on your flowery language, not on your promises, and not on your lip service. The thing about prayer, the thing about piety, expressions of religiosity, is that because we're human beings, we can't help but act from the perspective of our own ego as the primary agent. This is human nature. This is why it's repeatedly criticized. And the difficulty is that what scripture is calling for is an abdication of ego and a recognition that God is the only agent. He's the only actor. We stressed at the end of Mark that the ergon is the work of God. It is his work and he puts it in us, which means he gets the credit and we only get the blame when we don't fulfill and act correctly upon the agency of his instruction, his commandment. So if Jonah is in trouble and he prays, in his mind, he can't have any part in his being rescued from the deep. If somehow he imagines that his prayer was a cause and his rescue was an effect, then he hasn't repented. It's a very serious matter. I mean, this is the biological response. This is why it's inevitable for human beings to think this way. Is because when one is perishing, one likes to look to see what one can do to save oneself. This is the position that Jonah is in. And this prayer takes place with the understanding of Babylonian mythology. And in Babylonian mythology, the head god fights with the sea god in order to establish the land. By defeating the sea god, it pushes back the water so that the land can exist. In this passage, it reflects that, but with God as the actor, with the Lord as the actor, the Lord as the only God, who is in control of the waters, but that's the main task of the God, is to stay in control of the waters. God is showing his supreme strength when he is on the dry land. If you think in this paradigm, it'll help us understand the dynamics of this poem. This control that God exercises, Richard, over the deep, over the dry land, is reflective of Jonah's earlier admission that his God is the God of the heavens and the earth. He controls the whole situation. Now, in Jonah, as in Mark and many other books, the template is very clear. The Lord controls both the deep and the dry land for a purpose, and that purpose is the spread of his teaching. Notice how in the ancient world, the king, when he first organized cities in ancient times, 
would organize a city near a body of water because if you can control the body of water, you can establish industry, essentially. It's a form of industry. It's not industrialization. But water obviously was essential for the life of the city in the ancient world. But in the Bible, when the king builds a city and controls or attempts to control the elements in order to establish his power and his domain, it's viewed unfavorably by God because the king is the author of violence and destruction and tyranny. But again, God controls everything, not for the same reasons that a human tyrant wants to control everything. Now, to the extent that Jonah is resisting that control or viewing himself somehow as an agent in partnership with God, very much the way people speak in the modern world about their faith, that they're working with God. You don't work with God. God works, and you allow him to work by stepping down, stepping aside, and bowing your head. So let's read this prayer, Richard, and see exactly how it plays out with respect not just to chapters 1 and 2, but the rest of the book. We're not going to read ahead to chapters 3 and 4 today, but we're cheating because we know how it ends, and we know where Jonah's head is and what his attitude is toward those whom he was called to serve. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish, and he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. You heard my voice. This is always the trick. Is the call one of manipulation, of trying to get God to do what he wants? Or is it the call of true piety, which is submission to the Lord? Is he crying out in submission, recognizing the Lord's universal power, or is it the selfish call for the Lord to get him out of this jam that he finds himself in? One thing that's difficult about this is it sounds so much like the Psalms, like poetry we find all across the Bible. Is this the voice of piety or not? We already know that Jonah is not necessarily on the top 10 greatest guys of the Bible. We know that he rejected doing God's will. And so we're going to naturally read this with a kind of suspicion. We like to think that as soon as he entered into the fish's belly, he's going to repent. But we know that that's not necessarily the case. The central question as we try to understand this prayer is whether or not when Jonah says, I called, he is calling from a position of weakness and helplessness. Moreover, even if he is in a position of weakness and helplessness, is he accepting that position? And should God choose to pull him out of his situation, will he remain weak and helpless in his attitude toward the Lord? Or is it going to be not, I called out of my distress, but I called out of my distress, and look at me now? That's the question. And it's a very important question, because this is how the Bible becomes transformed from the sword of the spirit, which sows peace, to the sword of ego, which sows division and destruction. And it's a serious matter in our culture, because whether you're talking about the religion that people create from sacred texts or the religions that people create from secular ideals, when I look around today, Richard, I see lots of people wielding swords against each other and very little common ground. So there's much more at stake in this critique than people realize. 
For you had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. What's significant is that it's the Lord himself that cast Jonah into the deep, but it's also the breakers and the waves of God that are passing over him. The Lord isn't simply casting him away beyond his presence. He's casting him into trouble, yes, but it's a trouble that the Lord himself is able to control. It's important to note here also that for the ancient world, the sea, the deep, the ocean was terrifying. Remember that it was, in their eyes, boundless, both in terms of depth and breadth. It was dangerous. If the weather changed at all, you could destroy entire cities. It's true today, by the way, as we've seen in recent history with the tsunamis. So they understood how terrifying not just the waters, but the wind could be. And we're much more exposed to it than we are. And so to present this metaphor of the prophet being consumed and engulfed by the sea, by the deep, and pushed under and breakers and billows passing over him and so forth, it's a terrifying and a very dark metaphor. One mustn't underestimate how serious it is. It's not like going for a swim in the pool, so to speak. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards your holy temple. This, again, Richard, is problematic. It's one thing to be known by God and to be seen by God, the way that the Lord sees Zacchaeus, the way that God in Isaiah sees you in your mother's womb, the way that Paul said you should be known by God. It's God who has the agency. Moreover, if you've already received the word, what are you looking to? Now, please don't say, well, you know, it's just an expression. He's looking again toward the temple. No, there's no such thing as just an expression in technical literature, especially when the main thrust of the entire tradition is to criticize the things that men see. It's what we hear. And Jonah has already heard. So why is he pointing out that he is going to look towards the temple? Which temple? The temple created by the word? The word is already with you, as Paul says. It's very near. You received it at the beginning of chapter one. What are you looking to? Is the word not with you in the deep, Jonah? What does it mean to be cast out of or away from the sight of the Lord? Is the Lord not able to see Jonah just because Jonah can't see the temple? Is the Lord's vision confined to the dry land, confined to the temple, or does it go beyond? Oftentimes people are upset at God and rail against God because they feel abandoned by God, which does not necessarily imply that they are abandoned by God. You have to always keep in mind what Father Paul mentioned in our podcast this week on Tuesday, Richard, namely that it's incorrect to assume that you can equivocate Jerusalem and Zion. And by extension, it's incorrect to assume that the temple to which Jonah refers is the same temple that is assigned to the heavenly Zion. Which temple is Jonah talking about? This is such an important question all throughout. Is it the temple filled with the Spirit, not made by human hands? The temple 
that is posited by the word that came to Jonah in chapter 1 and that is with Jonah now in the deeps and that is still working to fulfill its agenda, of which Jonah is still clueless and to which he is still resistant? Is it that temple or are we talking about something else? Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. You were cast into the deep and the waves were coming over you. But now the waters are encompassing me, even the breath and the depth is closing in and the weeds are wrapped around. So in verse three, he was entering into the water, cast into the water, but now he's really sinking and surrounded and even strangled by the waters. This is a beautiful image, a darkly beautiful image of what this isolation from the Lord is. Now, was Jonah abandoned by God when he was on the boat with the sailors because God was sending evil against him? By no means. God was very active right in Jonah's face, but just with very unpleasant power and very unpleasant consequences so that he was cast in the water because of God. This feeling of being abandoned by God does not necessarily mean that one actually is abandoned. God is still working as he will later in the New Testament. He is still working to ensure that his seed is sown upon the earth. I think it's problematic even to view the casting into the sea as a punishment per se. I think it's an incorrect reading. I think it's more like a shepherd who, when he sees a lost sheep, grabs him and puts him back on the path. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever, but you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. God brought you up from the pit. Is it about you and about your prayer and about your repentance, or is it about his mission? Is the question, oh, the Lord brought me out of this because Jonah was such a good example, because Jonah had such pretty words, because Jonah was so respectful in the way that he spoke? Or is this in order for the Lord to continue to do his will, which we could say has never stopped happening? The Lord's will has continued to unfold throughout the entire book of Jonah, sometimes in spite of Jonah's will, but the Lord's will is not mocked. Jonah got in a boat, went the wrong direction, and then the Lord created a storm. People tried to row against it, and finally they gave up. They gave Jonah back to the Lord. The Lord put him in a fish, and the fish has taken him somewhere. That's the key. The mission keeps moving forward. The Word holds the agency. The Word holds the power. The Word is in control. The Word is more important than the person of Jonah. Is Jonah going to understand this? Does Jonah think that he is the most important thing here, or is he going to understand that the Word that he is to speak under God's orders would be more important? The Lord put him there for a purpose. The Lord is bringing him out for a purpose. It's not for Jonah. It is for the sake of the cause. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Again, I was fainting away. No, the Lord was making you faint away. I remembered the Lord. No, the Lord didn't forget you. You're the one who forgot the Lord. And it's not clear that you remember him now, because being in a jam and trying to cut a deal with the Lord does not count as remembering the Lord. 
So your prayer came to him, you say into his holy temple, but I want to keep raising this question. Why can't you be dwelling with the Lord in his temple while you're wrapped up in the weeds? Correct. It's the understanding of what the Lord is. If the Lord is a guy sitting there on a chair on the dry land and somehow magically your words get there, it's suspect. When your words are reflecting the holiness of the temple, which comes from the Lord's teaching, then you have a chance. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Now here, the word that the New American Standard Bible translates as idol is in fact Hebel. So it's empty breath. Those things which have no substance, a hevel, the vanity of vanities that's spoken about in Ecclesiastes, but of a lie. So the wisp of a lie. So it's something that has no substance. It's got no truth. It has nothing substantial to it. And those who serve those things. The service is essential because it points to what one is doing. What are the actions that one is taking? And if your actions show that your God is in fact the wisps of a lie, then there is nothing more for you to follow. So the ones who serve this wisp of a lie pay no heed to mercy, whether it's the mercy or the loving kindness, the chesed that they receive from God or that they owe to the people around them. We're going to have to see if Jonah is going to stick to the mercy that not only he received from the Lord that gave him his life, but also that he owes to the people around him. And we're going to see later on how he's suspicious of chesed, which shows that he serves the wisp of a lie in spite of the fact that he told the sailors that he served the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. I think verse 8 betrays his hypocrisy once again. We know later in the story, he will show attitude towards the people of Nineveh. They are faithful. They are devoted to God. I think what's being questioned here is the faithfulness and the devotion of the prophet. Because remember, the only reason we're in this spot is because he was going against the command of the word. What's going to happen? He smacks of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. What's going to happen when he sees the C student get an A+, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. So. You're going to cut a deal with God while you're in the depth of the pit. You're going to do a sacrifice. You get me out of this. I'll be so thankful. I'll do a sacrifice to you. You can't pay your vow and talk about salvation and victory coming from the Lord in the same breath. It doesn't work. If it's truly from the Lord, your vow, your payment, and your sacrifice are non-functional. Now, I think people get stuck when they hear this language because they don't know the Old Testament. They hear this language and they think, well, of course it's good to pay a sacrifice to the Lord, to express thanksgiving, to pay your vows, and then to give lip service that salvation is from the Lord. No! The reason the Lord is allowing him to fall to the depths is so that he will stop giving lip service, which is his sin. We know salvation is from the Lord. We know that the Lord is the creator and the master of the heavens and the earth. Jonah has been saying what everyone should know from the content of the Torah. 
What Jonah hasn't figured out is that no sacrifice, no praise of thanksgiving, and no vows and no payment can have any impact whatsoever on the will of God. If the Lord wants him in the pit, he'll put him there. If he wants him out of the pit, he'll take him out. And we all know that the function of the pit is to force Jonah midstream to take a U-turn and get back to business, ministering to and teaching and evangelizing the very people that he's going to be irritated with because he thinks they deserve destruction. I mentioned this on Sunday. Some people get A's without having to study very hard. Some people work really hard to get the A. They look at the person who didn't have to study much, and they get irritated. That's unacceptable. That is the entitlement mentality, and it's difficult for people to wrap their heads around it because we don't associate entitlement with hard work because we're all materialistic. But anytime you expect something, whether you earned it or you didn't earn it, in the eyes of the scriptural God, it's entitlement. The only reason why anyone has anything is because the Lord has given it to them. So you can't give anything to the Lord because he was the one who gave it to you anyway. He got it out of his own stock. The only thing that the human being can do is be grateful for what the Lord has given them. While Jonah is saying a lot of the correct things here, if he's going to sacrifice, he better sacrifice with a voice of thanksgiving. And he better recognize that salvation does not belong to him, but salvation belongs to Yahweh. And if he does owe anything, he better make sure that he pays it off. But will his actions reflect the reality of this? Or will this be vain talk? Will this simply be lip service? And we'll see in his reaction later on what kind of validity, what kind of substance there is to what he says here. It's not scripture, and it's not correct if it is situated in a context where it functions incorrectly. That's why putting up your sign at the football game, quoting John about salvation, is not going to work. You are not preaching the gospel when you hold up your chapter and verse number at the football game. You are not preaching the gospel. Quoting chapter and verse is not preaching the gospel. The only value of memorization is memorization, not chapter and verse based on some topic you want to address or argument you want to have, but you have to memorize the whole Bible. Now, don't tell me it's impossible because people have done it. That's the responsibility and the duty of the faithful. Have you memorized the Bible yet? Most people are trying to put together a plan to read it in a year. But if you truly memorize it, you truly know it cover to cover, then we can test what these words mean on your lips. And this is the test for the reader in Jonah. This all sounds beautiful and correct, but how does it function on the lips of the prophet? It functions here in Jonah to underscore his hypocrisy very clearly. Now, you have to do as Jonah says, not as he does. So you better accept that salvation is from the Lord. You had better pay your vows with no expectation that salvation comes from you. You had better give thanksgiving and every sacrifice pertains to the Lord. But again, you're also responsible as a disciple, not of Jonah, but of the words that the author of the text put in his mouth. You are responsible to understand how they function incorrectly for Jonah, but how they function correctly as part of the broader narrative and how they apply to you. 
So stop worrying about Jonah and whether or not his prayer is good or bad. If that's where your head is going, you're lost. You're not hearing what we're saying. This prayer applies to the addressee of the text, but the addressee is responsible not just to memorize this prayer, but to understand it in context of the total picture. If you just take this prayer by itself and read it in your service at your church, it's not going to help you. It will only help you if in the same service, someone reads the entire story of Jonah out loud to the assembly. Then we're getting down to business. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up on the dry land. And the choice of words here is beautiful because it doesn't say that the Lord saved Jonah. It says the fish vomited up Jonah. It says that the Lord only spoke to whom? To the fish. He didn't speak to Jonah. And finally, this word, the dry land, is key because the dry land is the dry land that we see not very often in the Bible, actually, but the first time we see it is when God created the dry land out of the seas in Genesis 1. During this entire chapter, there's this tension between the Lord who is pushing away the waters so that the dry lands can exist, yet he throws Jonah into the waters where, ironically, the Lord is still in control. But now he brings Jonah to the dry land, which is the salvation that he created from the very beginning, Genesis 1, even before there were human beings. This is the God who created the dry land so that the living things on the land would have a place to live. This is where he allowed the nephesh to exist, the breath of life in living things. And this is where Jonah can ultimately live, but he's vomited into it. He's not created like Adam. He is vomited onto the dry land. And being vomited onto the dry land definitely has this negative connotation that reflects what we saw in chapter one of Jonah. As the fish swallowed Jonah up, now it vomits him. If you don't understand what a real-time strategy game is, you can't understand Jonah. The Lord is playing an RTS game on his console, and he already had a destination marked off, and here it is. And Jonah was going off the map. So the Lord basically made the waves push against the boat. Then he forced Jonah off the boat. Then he had a fish pick Jonah up and take him here. The fact that Jonah was going on and on with his prayer is not germane. This is the point. You have to hear the narrative. The word has an agenda. It has a mission. So you can just see the game map, and you can see the boat wandering and Jonah trying to run away, God moving the mouse, clicking a few objects, and suddenly Jonah ends up at the destination. While the Lord was sipping his coffee, waiting for the character to arrive at the destination so he could complete the mission in the game. If you think of it this way, you realize that Jonah, in the prayer itself, doesn't really accept or understand the fact that he's the one who's able. Jonah hasn't figured that out yet for himself. And that's why he's going to have a kind of entitlement attitude in his dealings with those whom he was called to serve. I said it last week, Rich, I'll say it again. This is an important text for those who set out to do the work of the ministry. It's very powerful because the prophet is a hypocrite and he sets himself above those whom he was sent to preach to. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you very much, Father. 
just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.